Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 149 of Control the Controllables. And to start with, wow, what did we just witness yesterday in Melbourne? We now have a new leader as the potential greatest player of all time on the men's side of the game, as Rafael Nadal moves to 21 Grand Slams and doing it in a way that you just never would think. Two sets to love down, 3-2 down, 40 love down, and shows why he's the greatest player of all time in finding a way to come back from these positions. And then we had Ash Barty, the first time an Australian has won in the Australian Open in 44 years. We've got so many stories to unpack, and none of them have anything to do with Novak Djokovic this time. And unfortunately, none of them have anything to do with us getting any of our predictions right from the preview as well. But what an incredible event, and I'm so pleased to once again be joined by Kieran Vorster, who was with me the last time. Former fitness coach to Tim Henman, Wayne Ferreira, Dan Evans, to name a few. To Lucy Arl, the Eurosport commentator, worked in British tennis for many years with lots of the top girls. Katie Swan, Jodie Burridge, Laura Robson. And then we've also got Xavier Melis. Xavier doesn't need a lot of introduction, but a semi-finalist in 2002 Wimbledon and also a French Open doubles winner and, and the current coach of Lloyd Harris. And then we're welcoming back to our panel Freddie Nielsen and also giving him a big congrats as last week he is retired from professional tennis, the 2012 Wimbledon men's doubles champion. And our first timer on the panel, an Australian, someone who's going to bring Australian insight, someone who's going to bring doubles insight, and someone who's also going to give us insight into working with the US women because he coached for a few years, Sophia Kenning and also Jennifer Brady when he was working for the USTA, and that is Stephen Huss. So a big welcome to, to my panel I'm now going to pass you over to my amazing panel for them to share their insights on the Australian Open 2022. So Australian Open panel, a big welcome to Control the Controllables. How are you all doing? Very well, thank you. Doing pretty good. Well, Very good, thanks. It's, It's great to have some familiar faces back. And I would say a new face, but we, we can't quite see him. But he is a new member of the panel, the 2005 Wimbledon doubles men's champion, Stephen Huss, and an Aussie to talk us through the Australian Open and, and also some Aussie winners at the men's doubles this year as well, Hussey. Welcome to the show, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. Yeah, it was a fantastic tournament. And uh, yeah, it was good to see some Aussies uh, pick up some silverware. 
more than more than some. It seemed to be that the Aussies seemed to dominate the tournament in the in in the last few days. And and the next person I have to give a shout out to before before we get to the real meat of the of the show. I think you know the day of the men's final. You know we're talking after that epic five-hour, 31-minute match. But over to over to you, Freddie, and on behalf of all of the Controller Controllables listeners, uh, congratulations on an incredible career that you've had. Uh, it's it's come to, to an end as, as, play, as your playing career, but I'm sure there's a hell of a lot more that you've got to give in the sport. So a big well done. And how does it feel to no longer be an official professional tennis player? Well, thank you very much. That's much appreciated. It feels weird. Um, not good, not bad, just weird. It's been my basically my lifestyle for the last 20 years, but it's the right time for me. I don't have anything to play for anymore. I don't have any loose ends, and it's it's time to start a new chapter, so it feels good. I'm looking forward to to, to seeing what's, what comes next. And I want to, I've, I've been speaking to you separately. I want to get into, to bring you on to, to have a chat about your career and, and all of your learnings from that. So I don't want to go on about it too much in this Aussie Open episode. And, and I, I have to move into today's final. None of you picked it. None of us picked it. You know, we barely even mentioned Rafael Nadal when we spoke about it before, before the tournament started. Everybody was talking about will Novak Djokovic win number 21. And it maybe just started to feel like destiny a few days ago that maybe that circle, that saga was going to come to the end with actually Rafa sneaking up on all of us and winning number 21 just to finish it off. He's now a double Grand Slams he has. He has two at every single event. 21 Grand Slams, Xavier. Uh, incredible, huh? Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's, it's like you say, we didn't even mention it. I mean, I didn't even think about it. I mean, obviously, he's always a contender, but I mean, I didn't see this one coming at all. I don't think none of us did. Um, like you say, we're all talking about Novak, Novak, Novak when is it going to happen? But, you know, now Novak has to win two more if he wants to be by himself. So that's a different challenge also. Um, and with French Open coming up, if Nadal keeps this form, you know, maybe 22 is on the horizon. So uh, I, yeah, I watched a bit uh, today. Actually, I watched the last three sets and uh, it's amazing just the way he competes. He wasn't, I don't think he was necessarily the better tennis guy at some point, but he was just hanging in there, playing smart, slicing it up, serving pretty well, actually, I thought. And just, yeah. Uh, it's just the heart, you know, the guy has a heart of, of, of a lion. So I think that's why he won today. And I just got to take my hat off and I, I, I didn't see this coming at all. Zero percent. I mean, yeah. So hats off to him and what an athlete for, for tennis and for sports. So uh, it's been, uh, it was nice to watch him win. And Lucy at two sets to love down, and I was listening to the commentary and I think it was Tim Henman said all the way for it was 83 minutes. I think the second set was, and, and Tim was saying there hasn't been a moment in this set where Rafa's not being ahead. You know, he was up, he was up the early break. He got broken back. He served for it at five, three, he was up in the tie break yet. 
Medvedev just seems to find a way of sneaking these sets at the last minute. At that stage, did you give him any hope at all of coming back and winning this match? No, zero chance. I mean, I think that was the point you thought if he's going to stand any possibility of winning, he's, he's got to win one of those first two sets. And as you say, I mean, somehow he found himself a break up because that seemed unlikely. I don't know how he got into that position. And then not winning that second set, you thought, no way he's going to be able to come back. And I mean, still, I'm, you know, in shock, really. I think, like you said, it was it was kind of the stars were aligned and maybe this was just meant to be because his fight, I mean, even, you know, in the fifth with what happened there, he couldn't close it out and then he breaks straight away. I mean, at that point, I thought, OK, he's, he's done. You thought he'd maybe... Yes, you could back him at that stage and then he couldn't close it out. But then to break again and then close it out to love, which he did in all the sets that he won, actually, when when each service game obviously didn't didn't hold initially. But then, I mean, it just amazing. I mean, as, as Xavier said, the... He didn't actually serve well to start with, but then the serve got better. He was prepared, so he knew that he wasn't winning the exchanges from the back of the court. Certainly at the start, he was mixing up, used the drop shot well, used the slice well, got forward and just dug in. I mean, just phenomenal match and just ridiculous effort from him. And we didn't we didn't mention him at all. He was in a really tough section of the draw up at the top. Obviously, Novak was in that initially, but then when he came out, it was still a tough part of the draw. And for him to come through, just amazing. Uh, you, you talk about the serve because I watched the first two sets. Then the third and fourth set, I was actually in the car driving to a tennis tournament. So I was listening. I was listening to it. And... I had to have a little look at the stats after because what I, all I remember hearing on the radio was Nadal hits first serve, Medvedev returns deep middle, and now now Nadal goes and plays forehand. And it was like he could not get a free point. He couldn't get one. And, and actually, when I looked at the stats, in set four, Medvedev made 97% of returns in the court. And then he started. And then he started missing a lot more in the fifth. And then he made sixty, I think fifty-five, sixty in the fifth. And it and it, and it just seemed like at that point. And the other one, and, and Freddie, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because, it, and this is, I guess, what makes Medvedev so tough. The average rally length, I, I believe, for Nadal in the on his serve during the event was like three point six, three point seven. But in in this match, it was over seven shots. So, you know, Medvedev's making you play almost double the shots with just his relentlessness of putting it in the court. How how did you see the match from a tactical standpoint? Yeah, I was uh, very intrigued to see how it's going to pan out in the beginning to see how much Medvedev was going to go for broke and, and when he was going to pick his moments. But it was clear that he was not afraid to take the rally up. Uh, he looked like he was very confident in in staying with the rallies and and coming up with with the opening shot when it when it was there. And I felt like he was not overforcing anything. And I think he looked very confident at the beginning. And even though there was a few, there was one the Nadal second hole. I think was 
a bit of an outrageous hole with some crazy points and stuff and Medvedev have kind of lost some points that you barely lose and he just kept plugging away and kept taking it to Nadal and and I think it's it shows a lot on, on the way that Medvedev approaches his matches especially on hardcore that he knows that from the forehand and the backhand side I mean he has an awkward game style and it's flat balls and it's heavy balls um, he's returning so far back but it's really deep return and he knows that he's not giving the opponent a lot to hit on and and I think it was pretty nice to see somebody who was not that afraid of taking the rally with Nadal because normally you, th- you see people being afraid of what, what Nadal has to offer but I thought that Medvedev was willing to say hey I'm, I'm very comfortable and if he needs to beat me he needs to beat me but at the same time, I was also very impressed of the resilience of Rafa we've been speaking about. But I don't, I don't feel like he changed that much tactically after the first two sets. But he just kind of had faith in his uh, his game style and and faith that it was going to work and kept plucking away. And I think it's like at the end of the day, when Nadal finally retires, that I think that tenacity and resilience that he brings to the court is is historical. I mean, that's definitely his biggest assets. And then. He finally gets to grind down an opponent who looked like he was going to run away with it after the second set. I thought Rafa looked gassed at the end of the second set. I thought he should have won the tiebreak and he had a few good situations where he made some strange shots, I found. and then he, But he just kept plugging away. And I think that attitude is, uh, is pretty much what, what made his career. And Fozzy, and to bring you in at this point, because... He, he actually said, I believe he said after the match, Medvedev said this in his press conference. Rafa told me he's not trained really for six months. You know, and he certainly he certainly hadn't trained ready for a five and a half hour match. How we 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 discussed this in the preview of the Aussie Open. We said, is Novak going to be ready? Because he's been in quarantine for seven, 14 days. You know, where here it is, Rafael Nadal hasn't trained properly for six months. Is is he said it many times throughout the the fortnight. I considered giving up and stopping, you know, with my foot injury. You know, how was he able to bring that for five and a half hours and still look relatively fresh at the end? Well, I think all those comments, as well as also downplaying uh, downplaying the moment for himself. So, um, you know, by saying those things is is reducing the expectation um, on himself. Um, when he says, you know, he doesn't go to the gym, he he. he plays tennis and he, and, he, and he plays golf, which I don't really buy 100%. I mean, he must be doing some sort of, some sort of training. Um, and I think obviously with his weary body, the older he's getting, I think he's obviously training smarter, not harder. So, he, you know, he's been a lot more selective on, I guess, what, how he trains, when he trains. And, and I think also, I think quietly, he's, he, he has put in the work in the last six months. There's no way you can come out and... and Play a five setter in the quarterfinals, a four setter in the semifinals, and a five setter in the final, and look as fresh as he did. You know, um, so I think I, I think he, I think there was a little bit of mind games there of, of downplaying it. Um, so there's less pressure, especially you know on twenty going for twenty one, and him, you know, the comments he was making in the press in the press about that it wasn't that important. I think I think again was was just that expectation of course he wants to win 21 you, you know you wouldn't play all these years getting to 20 and then go well I'm happy at 20 you know if you've got the opportunity to win 21 and be be the outright you know racehorse running you know running you of course you want to go for it so 
you know. But I guess I that's smart. I, I, and, and Hussey, if you go back, if you, you you've you've worked with. You know some of the some of the top American girls. You've worked with Sophia Kenning. You know, and you, it wasn't that long ago that you were you were playing tennis. That that low expectation mentality, I guess, is a smart way to go about it. Yeah, and isn't it amazing that a guy that's been so successful can still downplay his expectations and take pressure on it off himself and um, and use that as kind of help for him to get prepared. But to me, uh, the physical effort comes from the mental. Um, you know, competitiveness and toughness that that guy has. I mean, to me, he proved again that he's the best competitor I've ever seen. He doesn't have a peer in that way. And I felt like... Oh, better than Xavier Melis. Is he better than Melis? I don't believe that for a second. <laughs> uh, yeah. Even though X is here an accident. And, I, and I like him. Uh, yes. But, I mean, to me, his... I felt like Freddie. I thought he was gassed at the end of the second. Uh, it's lucky that I don't gamble because I would have had anything and everything that Medvedev was going to win that match. But I think that, you know, that old Spanish thing that, Dan, now you're very familiar with, you know, he's willing to go through the suffering. He was going to compete. He was going to fight. He was going to stay there. And I don't know how he did it, but to turn that match around and win it is incredible. I also felt that Medvedev contributed to it as far as... In the third set, I felt he took his foot off the gas a little bit, and I think that he got a little tight at 3-2, love 40. Didn't play his best tennis there when he wasn't able to convert that break. And then he got upset with the crowd a little bit um, and started arguing with the umpire more. So he sort of distracted himself when I felt he had everything in his favour. I mean, Nadal was playing his game style. He was getting the serve plus one. He was using his forehand the whole time, but Medvedev's movement was good enough to combat that and he was able to turn points around and get up on the baseline on his own serve so I didn't see a way out from Nadal and uh and he just proved again why you know he's the best competitor out there it was it was awesome to watch and you you mentioned there Hussey Medvedev and and the thing with the crowd again if you haven't listened to his his press conference after the match it's really interesting um, you know, he makes some big references that basically it tells a story about, you know, the child has, has lost the dream and moving forward, he's just going to be playing for himself. He's very much making out that, you know, a little bit like Djokovic, I think, has done. He, he reminds me a lot of Djokovic Medvedev in some ways. He's almost building this kind of me against the world attitude that seems to work for him a little bit as well because we saw in the semi-final Xavier you know he was he was struggling he had a massive outburst which by the way I'd love to hear your thoughts did you see the outburst with City Pass uh no I didn't I, I heard uh, I heard a bit about it with calling names and there was some yeah or something uh you were like a cat or whatever I read about or a small cat umpire. yeah small cat um but you know it's it <laughs> How old is he? 25. I mean, if you're going to play the card of the rest against the world, then you're going to play another 10 to 15 years. I mean, it's going to be a long time and a lonely time on the tour. So I think he needs it to keep himself motivated and keep himself going. But um, I think there's other ways than to yeah, go against. I mean, listen, I, I'm not the guy to say I was always in argument with an umpire. But I was never, you know, disrespectful. I call names or something like that. I was always just complaining, and which to my disadvantage a lot too. So it doesn't really work in your favor, and it's unnecessary energy you're you're wasting, especially at at, at this level. And uh, like Hussey said, you know, it's three two forty love, and 
if he takes that point and he stops complaining with the umpire, it's 4-2. And then it's probably, you know, it's one or two points away uh, from that. So it's not good energy. Um, and he has to watch out. He doesn't lose. You know, once you lose the crowd, it gets tough. And if they go against you, those grand slams become a lot tougher to win. So it's it, it's uh, we say it's a knife that cuts on two sides. You want it for your energy and your motivation and keep you going. But... You got to keep the crowd and, 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 and the people on your side, too. That press conference you're talking about is very interesting. Really, really peculiar. But he is a peculiar guy who says what he wants. I'm a big fan. I love him. But at the same time, even though it sounds quite composed, let's not forget it was it's still in the aftermath of losing a final. And you might think that you're very composed and rational. But at the same time, he might maybe not regret it, but let's see how long time this feeling is going to last because obviously he's very disappointed because he just lost the Grand Slam final. And it seemed to be as well, Lucy Shapovalov also took on, I mean, he took on basically the greats of the game as well, you know, with 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 his comments that, that just see, again, like it, it feels, it's nice to see that this next gen, are, they're, they're, they're pushing, but I'm not sure, again, those comments are going to do him any favours calling out that the referees are biased towards the like the likes of Nadal, potentially something that he might regret down the line as well. Or is that good for the game? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think again, as Freddie said, in, in the heat of the moment, I mean, he was obviously really disappointed. He felt that it affected the match and still... You know, if you compare the time they've been in the game and the experience compared to the, the likes of Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, etc., you know, they're still pretty young. Um, and I think further down the line, they'll, they'll maybe realise that that's probably not the route to go. I think, you know, with experience and maturity as well, I think with with Medvedev, he has come a long way. I mean, we think back, probably pretty cringeable, some of the stuff he's done in the past, the comments he's made and how he's behaved, it did seem particularly in that match against Tsitsipas and the press conference after that he, he did know that he went over the line, he did apologise to, to the umpire and I think he knows that that isn't going to help him. It's tough though, they're, you know, they're, they're competitors, it's it's raw and they put it all on the line and, and sometimes they overstep the mark and it's just trying to get the balance and be who they are on the court. I mean, it's a tough act to follow, isn't it? Particularly Nadal and Federer with how they conduct themselves. I think they're in a different league and Djokovic has obviously felt that. I mean, his, his tennis has come through, but, you know, he still hasn't got the support that he probably would love to have and I think similar with the other players it's it's getting that balance you've got to keep your own personality so you can play your best tennis there's got to be some respect there as well and I think yeah it'll be interesting to see how and where they're at further down the line in their careers talking of personalities marmite personalities is there a bigger one than Nick Kyrgios you know, I'm, I'm not sure that there is, you know, and I think even the fact that 
you know, I've got two two Wimbledon champions here for doubles that I'm sure would would understand this. You know, you win Wimbledon as a doubles player, you probably don't quite get the same coverage as you do if you're winning Wimbledon as a singles player. You know, in the doubles world is hard to bring the coverage. You have a you have a French Open champion in doubles also. Let's not forget. We do. We absolutely have, we that's that's mentioned every time. We don't forget that, Xavier. Don't worry about that. <laughs> but you but in terms of in terms of Channel Nine, I guess Channel Nine is the BBC that we know in in the UK. You know the 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 biggest station in in Australia. During the Nadal, I believe it was the semi final of Nadal. They switched over to the main coverage to be Kyrgios Kokonakis's doubles match. You know, and it was it, it obviously caught the imagination of the whole country. Like you said, he, he's had he's had people come out and call him knobs. You know, Michael Venus was was on the screen calling him a knob. Um, he's had people that have been trying to fight him in in gyms, and apparently Netflix have caught this coverage. So he certainly seems to bring a lot. But Hussey, he's now him and him and his best mate Kokinakis are, are now Australian Open doubles champions. What did you take about that? Yeah, it's pretty fascinating, and isn't it? I mean, it is incredible the coverage that he's brought, um, but. You know, let's be honest. They're not. He's not bringing the coverage to doubles. He's bringing it to himself. Um, and he, I mean, he loves it. And I happen to think he is good for the game. Now, does everything he bring good is good? Absolutely not. Um, but the hype and everything he brings to the game, I, I think, is fantastic. He is a showman. He is worth watching. Um, so they're all positives. But then you kind of ask yourself, is that how I would want my son to act? Um, and is that? kind of the way that we do things within tennis circles and are we respecting the people around us? He probably doesn't do a very good job with that. Um, I do think, though, that if any of those teams had have beaten um, Kyrgios and Kokonakis, then obviously there wouldn't be a fight in the gym. There wouldn't be anyone calling anyone knobs. You may think it in your own mind, but you, you don't come out and say it. So the losing part hurts when the guy's carrying on like that. Um, and I think around sort of the bigger picture of sort of participation and overall tennis. I mean, he brings different people to the sport, but my question would be, are those people going to stay in the sport? Are they going to go to their local club and pick up a racket and play, or are they going to go the next day uh, and watch tennis and watch somebody else? Are um, they just going to shout? Are they just going to shout? For the, for yeah, the, for the no, next, for the go, next two years. Gonna drink and shout and be, you know, and, and, and act like that. So, it, it's a tough one, but uh, overall, it's good for tennis that he's in tennis. Um, but you certainly uh, got to take it with a grain of salt. So our first quick fire round, we're going to do quick fire rounds throughout this evening. Fozzie, I'm going to come to you first. You've got three options. Is he a knob? Is he a small cat? Or is he good <laughs> for the game of tennis? Uh, he's a knob. <laughs> Freddie? Good for the game of tennis. Lucy, yeah, I think it's it's good to have have some variety in there. So good for the game. Xavier, I don't know. I I, I watched it for the first time, the doubles, and uh, it's good and it's not good. I mean, I, I can't say knob or whatever, but maybe a half of one. <laughs> but it is good for tennis. It brings people, but probably not the right people. Yeah. It's, it's a fine line at, at the moment because he has to be careful he doesn't turn into a court jester 
and it's just yeah. like uh, uh, yeah. I think I think Freddie, you hit the nail on the head there, mate. Um, and yeah, I, I think I think it. You know, at the, the Australian Open is home is is his home slam. It was a show. You put on a show, but you know, you do that week in week out. I think it's going to come and bite your ass. Um, but you know, for 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 the event, and you know, yeah, he and and huge congrats to you know to to both both him and Cock and Ikes for. For winning it, but yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, it kind of overshadows a little bit, no? You win yeah. a slam, but all we talk about is his behavior, which should be the other way around. Really. Yeah. So, to, yeah. so, so to move that on fast, because I think I think you've all hit the nail on the head there. If we take him, and I think sometimes when you take a curious and you compare him to my next person, I want to talk about, you start to actually see what can be achieved in in this world through the platform that you do have. And that is Dylan Olcott, the Australian of the year. He was voted in. He's someone who I've followed for a long time. You know, obviously inclusivity in tennis, getting disability sport out there. He, he's played his, his matches on the Rod Laver Arena. He's brought unbelievable coverage to, to, to that sport. And, and, and is a great example, I think, Freddie, of, of how you can actually use the platform in the right way. You know, and he's fought for that for years. And for me, that was probably the most emotional story of Australian Open 2022, a 15-time singles Grand Slam winner, uh, an eight-time doubles Grand Slam winner, yet he cried his heart out talking about what it meant to, to finally be looked at as almost a normal person who, who is able to go ahead and, and play the sport just like someone who is able-bodied. You know, that was really quite special. Yeah, and and I think what's very important is now that, that you compare the Curious and the Dylan story. And to bring back, you asked about Shapovalov, is it good for tennis? Well, I think it's good for tennis that we at least see who these people are instead of polished PR faces that just give stereotypical answers. And if you, if you take Curious, for example, he seems to have found something that brings out the best tennis of, uh, for him. So if, he, if, he, if this is what he needs to do in order to see that Nick Curious who can compete with everybody in the world, then if that's how it has to be, then so be it. And, and, uh, if, if, and like I said before, it's a fine line between being serious and not serious. And if he can co continuously compete at this level, I mean, I think he was really unlucky with his draw. He could have gone deep. He was really up for it and was playing great tennis. And then you come to Dylan, and that's, that's the whole key is that I think it's great for tennis to have different personalities and characters because I think the sport is benefiting from contrasts. And one story, the one story is a great story. Doesn't mean that all other stories have to be the same. And Curious is also a story of a guy who's grown up in spotlight, and being being have, uh, having the, the the weight of the world on his shoulders and not really finding his way. And now he's found a way that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad because it wasn't uh, Dylan Elcott's story. I mean, it goes without saying that his story is unbelievable. I was in Australia for a month. He's probably the most advertised player down there, Dylan see him in TV adverts all the time and what he has done for the for for, for the uh, wheelchair tennis is unbelievable it, was, it wasn't supposed to be on the US Open program during the corona time but he, he, he called them out and then they put it on again so yeah I think his story is fantastic and, and I like it and I think there's I think we should be more open in tennis for different kind of stories it doesn't have to be the same story and 
yeah, it's obviously a fantastic story. Uh, to be honest, before Dylan came around, I wasn't too aware of of of, of what was going on in real jet setting. So yeah, massive credit to him and massive massive credit for what he's done and and uh, for Australia to really embrace it. I, I think you know, like if you even look at what what the, you know the guys have done here in England, are, it is phenomenal. But it just doesn't get the media coverage that that say potentially it, it has done in 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 Australia. You know, very sim- very similar to you know before his disgrace, Oscar Pistorius did for the athletes in South Africa who were you know disabled. Yeah, and, that, and you're and you're talking about their Gordon Reed, Alfie Hewitt, yeah. who who won their their fourteenth Grand Slam together and their ninth in a row. You know, so it's incredible. But again, we we're not. And and actually, I'll, I'll share something. Just that, just that stats alone, just that stats alone that you set out there, that should be you know mainstream mainstream news uh, and should should be trending on on all socials because that's a ph- ph- phenomenal phenomenal what they've done. So, so Vozzy and, and you guys, this is number 149 podcast that I've done. The least downloaded podcast that I've done is Gordon Reed. Yeah, but that, that also that also comes down to social, you know, like, like uh, again, all of this comes down to social value and it's piss poor because, you know, it's just, it's just that the media, the, the media should be pushing it. Our tennis writers, you know, everyone in it should, should be talking about it in, in a way bigger, bigger way, just like how we're talking about Nadal or just how we're talking about Djokovic. What they've achieved is, is phenomenal, but, but be, because, because the social value of these people is, is, is less or lower, people don't don't see see the importance of it which is a shame because i you know obviously i i, I can only talk about the, the wheelchair folk that i see at the um ntc and and the, the amount of work they put in and how hard they work it's phenomenal and and they and they are they, they train like able-bodied people so it's you know i wouldn't say it's a handicap because even the, the way they coach the way everything is done it's just it's just like if they're, they're normal and what they've achieved is phenomenal. And, and and I challenge anybody to get in a wheelchair and strap up and try and play. It's really, really hard. Really hard. No, they're they're incredible. Incre- yeah. incre- incredible athletes, incredible achievements. Yeah. And I I wanna move us over and, and Lucy, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to you on this because one, we made fun of you for going with the boring pick. It was the boring pick, but you are the only one that got close to getting any pick right, apart from I've got one that I'm going to try and loosely grab later. You um, might to make the main draw. <laughs> Vozzy's either went out before. Freddy's, Freddy's normally don't even enter the tournament, so Fred, <laughs> we didn't miss anything with Freddy not having a guess. You know? um, but Ash Barty, and, and watching, watching Barty, a, apart from that six game period in the, in the second set and the final, it reminds me of when you go and watch a kid play a tournament, like an under 14 grade four event. And they're, they're just ranked way too high for everyone else in that event. And you just kind of turn it up and at whatever point I'll break serve now, you know, and, and get your two and two win or whatever it might be. It looked like she was in second gear the whole tournament, but uh, obviously an incredible achievement 
first Australian winner in 44 years. We shouldn't underestimate the pressure that she was under in in that in that stadium on on finals day in particular. Uh, what what did you make of, of Ash Barty? Yeah, I think I think what she did was in some ways made it look easy and it certainly wouldn't have been. I mean, as you say, I mean, all the pressure that she had on her shoulders, I think the last few years where she's fallen short and you've definitely seen that pressure and the nerves, I think probably winning Wimbledon helped. I think obviously, you know, she won Roland Garris and then winning Wimbledon, which was, she said, a, a big dream of hers. I mean, obviously winning at home is is massive. I think that did help. I mean, she hardly lost any games. I mean, the matches were tighter than that. If you if you watch them, it certainly. I think it was she dropped twenty one games before she got to the coming into the final. Um, served unbelievably well, which I think makes a massive difference. I mean, hardly got broken at all. So if you're able to get through your service games relatively comfortably, then you know on the return games it makes life easier. But I think. Yeah, the way that she is able to manage and control her emotions very much talks about, you know, wanting to go out there with a smile on her face and enjoying it and, you know, being the best version of herself. I mean, she talks through all those cliches, but I think with all that she's gone through, I mean, such a good junior and then took a a break from the game, obviously was really struggling with the expectation, left the sport, played cricket, we all know the story, to then come back. And, you know, she's obviously gone through it. And I, I just just amazing. I mean, how she came back in, in that second set, I think tactically she's very astute. I think she's obviously got the variety and just seems to be slightly ahead of everyone at the moment in terms of the fact that she's got, a few different options if things aren't working. And that certainly was the case against Collins in the final. So yeah, just you pick the top seed, then you've got a reasonable chance. But I just felt that she was ready from from what what had happened in previous years and, and where she was maybe at, but she's still got to do it. And yeah, amazing for, for her and for, for the Aussies. Which matches did did you feel she got pushed in? Because first round match was 54 minutes. Second round match was 52 minutes. Third round match was 61 minutes. My girl, Amanda Anissimova, who at one point I thought was... She was... she was going to make me look good at some point. I mean, she obviously beat Osaka and, and also Bensic, which I'll remind you guys, if we should listen back, you said she wouldn't. But that was 74 minutes. Then 63 minutes quarterfinal, 62 minutes semifinal. And there's actually conflicting timings for the final, uh, depending on depending on which site you go on. But it certainly wasn't a long final. So, so who, who pushed her? I think it's it's about winning the key points, isn't it? And, and about stepping up. I think there were moments where she didn't necessarily play her best tennis, but she still was able to continue to hold serve, get through those key moments. And the, in most of the matches, there were times where, you know, you've still got to string it together. And, you know, I wouldn't say she was 
blasting through people like we've seen with some of the players. I think the way she constructs points and you know the way that she's able to produce a decent serve when she needs to, and that I think for me was was so impressive that you know when she's out there competing, she definitely is able to feel when she needs to step things up. I mean, Anna Samova, she, as I say, scoreline-wise, that was probably the tightest. But I think in some of the other matches, definitely there were moments there that, yeah, you, you've got to produce. And I think that's down to her mindset and her mentality. Yeah, she she looked different class to me. But Hussey, I want to bring you in because you, you've got first-hand lens of this you know one one thing this is my very loose grab here i'm grabbing it getting something right after after flopping so badly but i did i did say that i felt the american girls were going to push we spoke about venus and serena not playing barty played four americans from the fourth round anisimova prugella keys and then collins in the final American tennis seems to be in pretty good hands on the women's side. And, 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 and at this point, again, Danielle Collins making the final. Is, 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 was that a surprise for you? Or are, are these players, Keys, Collins, the sort of players that you would see pushing towards the later stages of Grand Slams more regularly? I think Madison Keys is, is absolutely a player that um, should be contending at the end of Slams. Uh, without question, she has the game, she has the power. Um, but, you know, she hasn't shown that she's had a consistent work ethic. And until she does that, then she's probably going to have these flashes where, you know, she shows that she can pretty much beat anyone in the world on her day. Um, but it was good to listen to her speak a little bit um, and feel like she had less pressure on her. She'd, uh, she doesn't enjoy to practice very much, it doesn't look like. Um, so she's going to have to work a little bit harder, but if she can... Um, there's no question she has the game to be in the later rounds of Grand Slams. Uh, Danielle Collins has terrific power. Um, you know, I saw her and, and spent a bit of time with her after she was out, out of college in 17 and 18. And, I mean, her biggest asset is, you know, what kind of upsets people sometimes, and that's her competitive, and that's just her ruthlessness. I mean, she's going to step over anybody. She's going to step on you to go where she's going and she's not afraid to do that you know there was a, just a period there where she was able to overpower um Barty a little bit um but you know let's be honest Barty is the best pure tennis player in in world women's tennis I mean no question about it she reads the game she feels the game she plays the game as a pure tennis player there isn't anyone better but there are some girls that can overpower her like an Osaka and like an Anasimova at certain times. Um, so if she's a little bit off, then those girls have a chance to overpower her. But Ash was on top of her game. I mean, talk about strengths, you know, intelligence, uh, great serve, great forehand, unbelievable slice. Talk about mastery of the slice, the different slices, line, cross, short, approach, defense. She's an incredible tennis player. So it was fun to watch. Um, but the American girls are in a good place and they're going to be around for a while and there's a lot of them up there. So, yeah, they'll be around. What was that stat with Barty? She only hit. Did she only hit two backhand winners coming over the ball the whole the, the whole tournament? Was it two backhand winners, three backhand winners? 
It could be right. It could be right. I, I, I didn't see that, but yeah, that that could easily be right, Buzzy. But, but then, but you know, going going back to say, you know, I, I worked at Tim Henman. The slice is an offensive shot. Um, I, I, you know, everyone thinks it's a, it's a negative shot. I mean, even even Evo, you know, Evo's slice as good, if not more effective, than coming over the ball as well. You know, if you if you're knifing it angled short with penetration, going deep, as as you just said with Ash, I think. The players of today don't know how to handle that, especially when it's keeping low. No question. And she hits the slice with intention. So, you know, what shot does she hit after it most of the time? A forehand, right? I mean, she can defend with it, yes. But when she can hit an offensive slice, she hits it. And then she can cheat a little bit to her left and often get a forehand on the next ball. So it's awesome tennis to watch and uh, really pleased for her and, and her team. And, yeah, to win at home in Australia after winning Wimbledon as well, I mean... She must be on cloud nine, and uh, and they deserve it. So it was awesome. And I, I, I'd love to bring you in here, Xavier, and see what you think on this because there's obviously lots of topics we can talk about, you know. But there's the obvious ones. So I was then going right. Well, who who are disappointing tournaments, you know? And, and I guess that's 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 subjective. That's my opinion going through it. But Zverev losing fourth round on the men's side, a little bit disappointing for him, I would imagine. You know, her cats lost second round, a little bit disappointing for him. You know, he's someone who is starting to get. And, and then I struggled a little bit on the men's side. But then when I went to the women's, I was like, Kvitova, first round, Coco Goff, Kerber, Kenning, Fernandez, all first round, Muguruza, second round, Osaka, third round, Sabalenka, fourth round. I mean, nobody was betting on her after Lucy told us how many double faults she'd hit at the start of the year. But it, it, it does, Raducanu, I know, again, we spoke about it beforehand. I think it's harsh to say disappointing, but ultimately second round. You know, it seems as if... They're struggling to grab it. We've had that this discussion before, you know, but what what is it that makes it so difficult for people to repeat level slam after slam after slam after slam? I think just there's more variety and more players and everybody works harder, I feel like. I mean, coming back to Nadal and Medvedev, I mean, but it seems like everybody's handling matches five hours, five and a half. I mean, back in the day when I started, everybody was cramping. You know, if we got to three hours, we were hoping, I mean, I played guys that were cramping in the fourth set and it just seems like there's a wider. Uh, yeah, but what, what would be interesting on that though, Zav, is, is actually actual time versus elapsed playing time. So, so you may have been playing, at, elapsed time may have been less, but actual playing time may yeah. be more, so a little bit more rally, so hence you're cramping. Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm no, just... no, I totally agree. But still, when it's hot like this, five hours on court, five and a half. I mean, I just feel like everybody's better prepared, and um, also the levels gone up, so everybody can be. You know, it used to be uh, the men, the women, doesn't matter. Uh, you know, the top top people were getting through the first, second, third round fairly easy. But I feel like those days are over a little bit. Um, but even Xavier, on that though, on the men's side, it seems like there's more consistency of name as you, yeah, as you. Yeah. is Is that, and maybe to bring you in as well here, Freddie, is that a five set, three set thing? You know, if you play over five sets, if you're better than someone, you'll tend to... You'll tend to get the job done over five. Whereas a, a three set match, 
things can go either way. Mm. You know, two sets and a 10-point tie-break in doubles, you know, matches can change or, or futures qualifying. Any any matches can happen. Is, there, is, is that one of the reasons, Freddie? Is there any other reasons that we're missing on why that there seems to be more variety in names in the women's tour that are going deep in these draws than there is on the men's? And that's my opinion. I don't have the fact to back that up. So shoot me down on that as well. I don't think so. I mean, sure, it does play a part. Definitely. Uh, you can just see it in the Master Series when the men play. There are more people that have won a Master Series than uh, and never made, won a slam. So obviously it has some effect. But to the extent that it does uh, with the women's tennis of the last few years, I mean, I think we talked about it before, how many one-time winners there are on the women's tour compared uh, on the women's slams compared to the men's slams. Um, I don't think it plays that much of a difference because I remember growing up with with women's tennis where where girls were dominating. You had the you had the Graves, you have Serena, Shostakovich, you had the Kleisters, uh, the Capriati, Davenport. It was always the same people going deep, and 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 to 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 take a a page out of Roy Keane's book, I think it comes down to characters a little bit. I think that the modern modern player is not as equipped to be that ruthless winning machine as they were back in the days. And that's just a subjective opinion, but without sounding too critical, I think there's a little bit of a softness to it. And I think it's the same on the men's side. And I think that's why we haven't really seen the young generation break the old generation. And I think that's why a guy like Nadal is still winning slams when we all thought it was done because that mental resilience and, uh, and, and that ability to be, tough when it matters and, and rising to the occasion. I don't see that as much in the young generation as I used to. Uh, so, so that's my take on it anyway. Would you say that's entitlement that the, these young kids, because, because they've, they've been spoiled so much coming in, 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 in today's world that they, they feel that entitled that, that they don't know what it's like to handle adverse situations and dig deep and grind. Um, yeah, maybe I think I think that's all that, that could that could play a part. Maybe so. Maybe that's the beginning of it. But I think it's also much more. Uh, it's not accepted to put pressure on kids anymore, and to ex- expect demands. I, I see it a lot in Denmark, for example. You expect something on the kids, and you hear something from the parents, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. And they, if you expect something, they go to another club or or whatever. I, I think maybe maybe you can use entitlement. I think more it's. It's, it's more, I think it's in every part of life in the modern day that there's much more cushion around the youngsters and we, there's this uh, impression that we need to protect them and, and, and not put them into difficult situations because, ooh, imagine if they feel bad. Back in the days, I think you were much more inclined to expect things of, of kids growing up and and I don't remember participation medals being being a thing back in the days and these kind of things. And I, and I think it's just a general thing in the world all over the place. I see it even in schools now that you can't really expect too much of kids or, or, or ask too much of them because there's this whole, oh, let, let's, let's watch out for them. Let's not put them into any unpleasant situations, which is, in my opinion is something that we adults kind of pretend is unpleasant for the kids because I don't know what you guys were like growing up, but we were playing football in the schoolyard. We were playing matches with each other and we were getting into it and we were winning and losing and it was life or death. But when it was over, it was over. I feel like it's the parents that, that think it's much worse for the, for the kids than the actual kids do. And then 
yeah, long, long story, long answer short, I think it's just because they're being, being protected much more in a way that is meant to be good for them. But I think it backfires when it comes to be to competitive sports. I think, I think, well, I mean, I agree with you, but I, I, I you know, I've been around it, but it's, and I just see it's too easy for, for, for kids to go exactly what you said about moving from club to club, but just go, uh, I don't work with that coach anymore. Why? Because something may have happened or they may have said something in, 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 you know, that they didn't agree with and it's too easy to move and out of context, but in, in the same situation, my son had a trial at Crystal Palace football club under 15s and he did three weeks and he had a three-week break over Christmas, right? Now, they have Category 1, Category 2, Category 3 clubs here in, in England. And it's a Category 1 club. The coaching's phenomenal. He's training four days a week, and then you play matches. He went back after Christmas, right? And he was, he was absolutely thriving. He was, you know, mixing it with all of them. Came after the first training session back after Christmas. I picked him up from school, and he went, I don't want to go anymore. And I said, Why? And he said, because they're coaching me um, the, way, the way they scouted me. I'm not playing the same way. He gave me all his reasons. And I, I pulled the plug and I, I messaged Crystal Palace, the, the head coach, and said, look, he's decided for his own personal reasons. He wants to withdraw from the trial process. I was, I was hurting inside as a parent, hurting like you won't believe especially from the from where i where i came from and where i grew up and what i had to you know what, what i had to do to try and make it as a tennis player and trust me i tried to play pro tennis and i was shit right but one thing i can say is i gave it 100 percent effort and i left no stone unturned and it was he was pulled out of his comfort zone he was pulled out of his comfort zone from his grassroots club right and he didn't like it he didn't like it. And instead of me saying, and this is where as a parent, it's a fine line between me saying, like, you've got to go. And then he starts hating the sport and then he pulls out. Or you then say as a parent, okay, that's fine. What I should have said, I should have said, look, okay, whatever the case is, go for the eight weeks, enjoy the process on the premise that we're not going to sign, you're not going to go there. Even if they offer you it or they, or they tell you you're not good enough. So the decision may be made. But it was too easy. The decision making was too easy, and I think the, the the younger generations of today do that because it's 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 the entitlement. It's made too easy for them. Now, in his head, my son's head, he's 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 got in the Sutton Academy, which is a Category Three. But he but that was luck. But the decision he made was mind blowing. Mind blowing. Um, I think there's a lot less. Uh elite level talent in the women's game so like freddie was saying if you go back 15 20 years and you look at the players who were playing you know the belgians kleisters and hennen and davenport and the williams sisters to me that 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 group of sort of the top eight ten you know maresmo is another one that comes to mind they were unbelievable phenomenal players um and to me there isn't the same elite level of tennis. And I think, you know, we used to talk about it as a federation when I was with the USDA. There's great opportunity on the women's side because apart from sort of Serena, who kind of is now out of the picture, but there's a lot of opportunity. I mean, no one else was sort of dominating. Um, and so I, I don't think that's happening right now. Uh, and then the other part is I think social media plays a role. Uh, the, the girls are under way more scrutiny, way more judgment um, and way more pressure 
And I agree with what the guys are saying about how you've you got to be able to stand up to that a little bit more. But 20 years ago, they didn't, they didn't have that. And I think it's harder now to repeat those efforts, Dan. I think it's, you get way more anxious and you have to have an amazing team around you that kind of keeps you grounded and you're able to be mature enough um, to handle that pressure on the shoulders. So just a couple uh, of thoughts. Uh, no, and I think it's, it's very true. And I, I think the, the two that jumped to mind for me actually is Medvedev and Raducanu. And if you, if you look at them two, it's just on a sheet of paper on what they've achieved in the game. Medvedev is streets ahead. I mean, I don't know how many Grand Slam finals has he played in now? Four, five, I guess. You know, one one Grand Slam. He, if he'd won today, he would have been world number one. And he's got two people in his box. He's got his coach and he's got his, his manager. He, he tends to go by, I mean, I, I, could you imagine Medvedev walking in the streets of New York or London or somewhere? Nobody probably would know him. You know, I know he's getting more, he's getting more famous. Whereas you take Radicanu, who is, yes, she's won a Grand Slam, but nothing else yet. Whereas she's probably one of the most recognizable faces that, that there is out there now. And, and social media has, has done that, you know, that, that, that social media has completely thrown her into, into that limelight. And once you start to feel like you're protecting something and protecting a career and, it's it's got to be very difficult, and 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 it seems to have it seems to have happened with a few of the girls, you know, that have won their 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 first Grand Slams. But I I don't know what if you guys have any thoughts on that. Can I just elaborate a little bit on my point as to what what Hussey is saying with the social media, and and that that kind of comes back to what I was uh, trying to say about the the characters as well. I don't feel like. From the outside, of course, it's pretty pretentious to try and pretend like I know what's going on, but it just feels like a lot of these players, they're not really prepared for what's going to happen when they actually go ahead and win it. And one example, for example, is is Osaka, who I'm a big fan of in general. I think the girls actually have some pretty interesting characters that could do well for the game for many years, maybe even more interesting characters than the men's tennis. I mean, they speak up on current matters and and uh, and off tennis uh, stuff and, and, and have something to bring to the table. And Osaka is one of them. And then all of a sudden it, 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 it gets too overwhelming for her. Yet at the same time, she has, what, 25 sponsors and keeps bringing out one social media post and, and bringing the spotlight to herself as well. So I'm thinking, what, what did you expect was going to happen? You know, and it feels like there's a little bit of winging to it and saying, oh, this is great. Now with Raducanu as well. Okay, she's one. She's great. She's a star. Now we're signing up. Tiffany's whatever. Uh, and now we're just going to milk this box instead of, uh, hang on, uh, what, what does it? What does this mean for me? How am I going to prepare for it? And, and how am I going to be a champion going forward? You know, am I just going to, okay, now I'm here. I'm just going to rinse it in. Because if you bring back to Osaka, it didn't seem like she was particularly up for all that. Yet, the the, the sponsorship deals and all the attention seems never ending. I think you, I think I think it's, it's an interesting point, but but then that's what their agents are there for, right? So the agents, the, this is where it's a double-edged sword. The agents 
are representing the, the agency company, the agency, but also represent the player. So what they should be doing is the best interest of that player and should be nurturing that player in the best way possible for longevity in the sport. And, and obviously if they do that and then say, okay, we, we, we're not going to take on these sponsorships right now, then the agency that they're working for loses a whole bunch of money. And so, you know, if they were, if they were doing it right, they would, they, they would be nurturing, nurturing the athletes in, in a way that, listen, if you carry it on, and I hate to use this word because it just winds me up, the trajectory, which is used by, by um, Rodicano all the time, it's if you just carry on the pathway that you're going down, you, you're, you are going to get all the sponsors and you'll get probably more than more if, if, if we just protect you and nurture you this way, but it's like, boom, you want to slam. And then all of a sudden it's like the floodgates are out. The vultures are out for you both, both to, to take you as a sponsor, but also to shoot you down when, as soon as you start going, it's doing badly. But at the same time, and maybe I'm naive here. I mean, you're the master of your own life, you know, and I completely get your point. I don't disagree, but at the same time, you're also responsible for, for making the deals and taking on the attention that, that comes with it. And, and if you don't want it or can't handle it, then maybe you didn't prepare yourself well enough before it. And I completely understand that it's easier said than done from the outside with the agents. But I, but I just feel like there's a little bit of personal responsibility as well. So I, I, I knew Bill Ryan. I don't know if you knew Bill Ryan. He was he used to manage Borg. He managed Roscoe Tanner. He managed Kafalnikov, Thomas Inquest. Like every Swede, he managed. IMG used to hate him because he always looked after the players first and foremost. That was that was his premise, and he was a legend with the players. But you and he would always he'd always protect the players and and do what's right for the players. What you find is the agent with the most experience should be the ones looking after or, or making sure that they uh, are influencing the agent that if it's a young agent taking care of it, making sure that they're doing things right for the best interest of that player. Because when you're 18, what do you know? That's very you know, true. You know, when, you, when, you, when you're 31, 30, 20, you know, or mid-20s, you know a lot more. So when you're 18, you're hoping that the people around you are giving you this, the most sound, most professional advice in the best interest of you. You've also, got par- you've also got parents in there, Voss, right. haven't you? Yeah. If you're talking about an 18-year-old, it, it's, it ends up, where does it end? Because, you know, the, the, the player's not making all the decisions. The parent's involved. If the agent doesn't give the parent and the player what they want, then they'll sign with a different agency. And this is, it's this whole, it's this whole power, power yeah, thing that happens across the board in tennis. It's the same with coaches, isn't it, to a degree? Yeah, but that's the million dollar question. It's like, you know, you know, what do the parents want? Surely as a parent, whoever you've, you've got around you, as you, you, want, you want those people in the best interest of, of their child who is an athlete and a, a talented athlete to, to get the best out of them. If the, parent, if the parent has any other motive, then that's, that, that, that's wrong. That, that would be the premise as a parent. You know, like, hey, I, I want you to work with them. I want you to do this or because we know you've got their best interests at heart or not, or we want you because I actually don't care about, I, I don't care about my, my, my son or my daughter. I just want you to solicit getting as much money out, out, out of sponsors as possible. But it's like a slight tangent. Uh, it's, it's the same subject, I hope. But I, I, uh, our sports psychologist at the Academy, Anthony Ross, used to work with Ash Barty. He sent around uh, a video of Ash Barty's dad who 
Rob Barty would be known as one of the best tennis parents out there for the way he's handled things. And he did a webinar, not just with our academy, but with, with parents a few months ago. And one of the things Rob said, it was back when Ash was about 20 in the world. And I apologies, but this also shows how amazing and humble the Barty team is. I don't remember the name of Ash Barty's coach, uh, you know, but just shows how, what an amazing job that, that they've done to work as a team. But when she was about 20 in the world, it was in Australia and Rob Barty got a call from his wife to say that everyone in Australia is talking to say Ash needs to move coach. All of the agents are saying it. Everyone's talking about it. What what are we going to do? You know, what are we going to do? This is the pressure that's, that's, that's coming by. So Rob picked up Ash from the airport. She flew back to Brisbane from 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 Melbourne and uh, he, he had this conversation with Ash where he said you know have you heard what everyone's saying about your coach and maybe it's time for you to move on and as good as a parent as Rob was he was still listening you've got so many people in your ear at that level that it's hard to quite know what's right and and he said this to Ash and Ash spent a couple of hours thinking about it and came back and said um, so I've thought about it and I want us to give, give the coach a 50 grand raise. And I want you Craig well, Kaiser is his name. Yeah, Craig, there you go. So, so sorry, yeah. Craig, if you are listening to this, um, that, 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 you know, but fair play to you for the humility that you guys look at it as, as a team. And, and that, that call that Ash made at that point of saying, you are my guy. I don't care what everyone's telling me. Everyone's filling my ears and filling my team's ears that I should be changing coach because everyone's looking for that magic dust. Not only am I going to keep you on, but I'm going to give you a raise over a three-year contract. You know, you are my guy. And then obviously she's reaped the rewards. She was talking about it after the event that Craig's the best coach in the world, you know, really giving him an incredible amount of credit. So I don't know if I've gone off on too much of a tangent, Vozzy, but just it's it's hard to know when you're in that position, you have such a small period of time to make some of these decisions. You've got people in your ear drip feeding certain things. I think it's quite hard to make the right decisions, I would imagine, when it happens so fast. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, it'll be interesting to know what age Ash was when she, when, when she did that and how long she'd been on the tour. If you look at, say, um, the Radicanu decision to fire or, 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 you know, give up Andrew Richardson for me is a complete nonsense. The girl's 18 years old. What does she know uh, what's best for her at that age and and, and on the basis of, of, of the results that she's been given? And um, her results haven't been that great since. And, uh, you know, it, we, we'll never know what, what, what it could have been with Andrew. But, um, yeah, I, I get it. And, and I think also, also the bigger your team, the more dangerous it is. Um, because you know, I, I know, I know loads of, of times the the fitness coach would be in the ear of the tennis player and have and and have had influence on on coaches losing their jobs, and 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 a lot of that also comes down to um, certain situations or certain periods of time. If if the player's in a slump, not not winning. Well, it can't be the player's fault, can it? It's got to be someone to blame. Well, hundred percent. But then, but then on that basis, I remember the first year I started working with Wayne Ferreira in 1997. The first nine events we went to, he lost first round, 
and I was young, but I went to him and I said, Wayne, I, 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 I actually don't, am I doing anything wrong? I started questioning myself and credit to the guy as a person. And he said to me, Foz, it's nothing to do with you. It's all me. He says, you just keep doing the work that you're doing. And, and so, so there's also that honesty as well. I mean, I'm the first one. If I, if, if I feel if I'm working with a player and a lot of it comes down to if I know I'm giving 100% or, or, or somebody's giving 100%, you can't ask for any more. And you need to go to the player and say, hey, listen, I, I, if I'm doing something wrong, just, just tell me I'm, I'm, I'm ready to walk. It's, it's not a problem. But there's, 100, there's, there's 254 people are leaving the Australian Open they've yeah. played the main draw, yeah. questioning whether they've got the right team around them. <laughs> they've all, because in, in some ways, I know that's an extreme, but 254 yeah. have just lost. You know, so yeah, but there's, I think, I think there's a reality. There's a reality in terms of there's 254 people playing that event, but how many out of those 254 actually believe they can win it? There, there's a whole bunch of going there and going. You know, I'm, 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 I'm looking at winning a couple of rounds here, and I'm taking a big fat paycheck. My mentality is, yeah, every tournament if I was playing, I, I'd, I'd be playing to win. I'd probably lose first round because I wasn't that great, but there's a big difference. Um, and also, the, I think there'll be a wider, you know, obviously, the bigger the names, the bigger the teams. You know, the more people in the party, the, the more chance of there being a tear-up, you know, within, within it. And, Xavier, to bring you so, in on, on this point, you're certainly the biggest name in in this room you know in in terms of in terms of your your singles career in terms of the potential in terms of i would imagine having people around you you know especially you know being very good junior all of those things what's your what's your memory of that time agents getting the right team knowing who to listen to you know maybe some of the challenges that you had um, it, it was pretty tough. Um, I mean, that's where I was listening to to Freddie and saying that you should get prepared for it. But honestly, it's tough to to sometimes prepare for it because it can come really quick. You know, like let's take Raducanu. It comes within. You know, yeah, she did well at Wimbledon, but it was more like a cute story. You know, everybody's like, oh, cool, this and that, and then all of a sudden she wins. But it's, yeah, it's the people around you. And like you say, everybody wants, you know, it goes quick. There's too much money out there now. Everybody wants a piece quickly. Um, you never know what's going to happen, all these things. But it does happen quick. Um, I know I didn't handle it well. Um, the first two years is too much pressure because you go from, you know, just doing your work um, to having to perform, having to win matches. Uh, now you got contracts. Now they're expecting you to win. And uh, for me, uh, I kind of zoned off for about a year, year and a half until I said, okay, enough of this. And this is what I want. And this is the team I'm going to take. But it does take a while to know um, who, who to pick. But it's like Fozzie said also, you know, you got the, 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 the mental coach there who wants to say something, then this guy's going to say, oh, the coach is no good. You know, everybody's talking and the, the, it's, it's, it goes quick too, you know. Even if you say it jokingly or something happens, it, it's in that player's head if somebody says something. And so if you want a good team around you, then it needs to be everybody. You know, I when I work with Lloyd now, I say my thing on the tennis I, you know, obviously I've done the physical part, but as a physical coach, I don't get involved. You know, even the week before the Open, 
we had a week in uh, Lexington. I didn't even go to the physical uh, practices. I showed up 15 minutes before we were going to hit, make sure everything was okay. And then it's my, my, uh, my task to do my job. And then it's the task of the physical coach again to stretch him out this. And then there's the task of the girlfriend of keeping relaxed and enjoying life. But you know, when there's a lot of money involved, everybody wants to have a say and everybody knows or thinks they know better. And it just happens quickly and the pressure builds quickly. And before you know it, you know, you're, the love for the game goes away a little bit. Now it's a mental thing. It has nothing to do. And then, you know, you change coaches. Like say, Raducanu changing coaches, I think is the worst decision she could have made. I don't know the whole insights. That's for them and for the management to know. But... I'm with you, Zeb. I'm a hundred percent with you. It's it's it goes so quickly, and I, I don't mean a bad word about managers, but they are a big influence, you know. And they still work for a company unless you have a manager by yourself. But they have to put up the numbers too, and you know who's gonna say as an eighteen year old, hey, I'm gonna deny a two or three million dollar deal because I want to progress first and see where it goes. I know I wouldn't, you know, I mean, sorry, my language, but I would jump on it like everybody else probably would jump on it. So how many golf club memberships is that, Xavier? Do you know what I mean? Uh, depends which club you're joining. You're spot on because the managers influence the player on who the next coach will be. Yeah. 100%. And even the manager influences the parents. Yes. They're the ones that talk to the parents if the kid's too young. I mean, I, I went through it. My parents didn't come from a tennis background. You know, my brother played pretty good, but, you know, my parents. And luckily, we ran into Justine Hennon's dad, who helped us a lot because she was with IMG and things were moving quickly. And that's how it went. So you need some luck on finding and running into the right person uh, to give you advice let's say you don't have a management and now this is what happened to me. You're top 10 in the world, top five juniors. And now they're all knocking on the door. Who do you pick? Who has your best interest? Yeah. Nobody knows who you're going to ask. You're not, a, you know, you're not in that world. So it's, it's very tough to, you have to be lucky to find the right person manager who has the best interest and in, as a person, first of all, and then as a player. And I think you need to go away from the big agencies to find that because I know loads and loads of like like managers that are working uh, you know on their own who who have to fight they have to fight for their own bread and water so so they're the ones that if you know when you go to but but unfortunately they don't have the powerhouse behind them to say right we've got this deal this deal that deal so the quick win the quick win that gets you to sign on the dotted line yeah. whereas that, that single person. Will, yeah. like John Morris. John Morris is a prime example uh, how how he and I listened to his podcast. Uh, was it was it with you, Kina? Oh, if it was a big name, it was definitely Control the Controllables. Yeah, and 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 um and and the story about how he chased Kyrgios and how he got Kyrgios, but he was working on his own. And, you know, so it's just and and then and then he went to IMG and then now he's gone with Lubicic, which you know, you know so he he's obviously moved Not and, anymore. And, yeah, not anymore. But he's moved. What I'm saying, he moved. He moved on. But it was a phenomenal story, just just with him and and his boy, his his player, and what he did for Nick at that young age, and how he chased him, and how you, you know how he and, and he had his best interest at heart. Jerry Maguire. If I can just, uh, I can just tie up my point. 
Yeah. Uh, I think what, one of the things that I, why, why I think the way I think is because I've always been very big on personal responsibility and I refuse to lay blame on everybody, on anybody else, not saying having a pop at anybody, but that's just the way I think. And obviously being an absolute novice at tennis uh, compared to all these guys we're talking about, I have nowhere of relating to what it's like to be in that situation. So obviously it's all theory for me on the outside. And I'm never, ever going to claim that it's easy. But we're talk- that's why we're talking about these extraordinary human beings here. We're not just talking about making it on tour. We're not talking about making top 10. We're talking about the people that are winning slams. You know, That's the ones we're talking about. We're talking about the few individuals in every generation that rise to the top and are able to, to, to rise above all these difficulties and still make it. And, uh, and that's why I think that I, I have this expectations of him and and you 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 like you've all said you to a certain point you do know within your team that you're gonna make it somewhere i mean if you have a if you have a big product and you you have an understanding of what you're gonna go i think there's it's it's it seems like a lot of it is too reactive to just going to the situation and we're gonna wing and this and this and i, I just feel like if you have a multi-million dollar franchise here you 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 must be prepared and i've seen it work before i've seen it with caroline from denmark she handled it well sharapova was a boss she absolutely handled it well and was able to maximize her commercial side while still being a competitive beast so i think it's still possible and that's what i'm talking about these not not just all the youngsters coming through but these extraordinary talents that end up being the multiple slam champions ash barty does a good job but the, the the one thing, I mean, it's a great discussion and, and I'm, I, I'm more than happy. I think it's amazing for the listeners to go off on these tangents. But the, the one thing just to tie up the, the women's event before I, I want to move into a, just a couple of stories to, to finish off is that's two years in a row that there's been an NCAA female player in the final of the Australian Open. You know, so Danielle Collins this year, University of Virginia, and last year, Jennifer Brady, UCLA. And and I think for years, people were saying that US college doesn't work for, for the girls. There's some success stories coming through with the guys. Now, maybe there is some spaces available because like you say, there's not some superstars that are taking up those spaces right now. But that has to be a good thing for US college. And I'm going to go to my US college buddy, Hussey, me and Hussey used to compete against each other in the same conference when we were in America. Uh, the college coaches must be loving life right now. Yeah, Dan, it's a terrific advertisement for, um, you know, to try and get players to go to college. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you got to remember what the actual numbers are. I mean, on the men's side, it's generally, you know, one or two a year that come out um, and end up being top 100 players. That's about the number. Um, and on the women's side, it's less, uh, but it is happening. Um, so... I do think that um, it's a fantastic pathway for the huge majority of players. Um, Not for everybody. There are some that are elite and probably shouldn't go. But if you're umming and ahhing about it and it isn't obvious that you should go pro, you should probably go to college. And then it's a matter of uh, doing your homework and uh, and doing your research and trying to get to a place where you you know that um, a coach can help you develop and also 
an environment where you're going to get great competition. So, yeah, I, I love the college pathway, and it is for almost everybody. Um, and, you know, I, I spent about a year with Jenny Brady and, and very, very, very pleased and, and happy with the time that we work together and very happy for the success she's having. Um, and going to college uh, was absolutely the right decision for her. Um, and also Danielle, who spent the full four years in college and won, you know, I think she won either two or three NCAA titles. Yeah, two singles, um, yeah. It shows that it, it, yeah, it, shows that it absolutely uh, can be done. And, and just to keep on, on this, Hussey, and, and it, guys, please jump in on the U.S. college stuff. Just uh, we've got this fraternity thing going here, me and Hussey, about U.S. college. Is for somebody like and moving into the juniors, so it's always I think it's always good for people to hear the names of juniors. So uh, Bruno Kusahara, you know, winning a, a three-hour, 43-minute match. Unbelievable, like dramatic scenes. Jakob Mensik, who we beat in the final, was cramping and couldn't get up off the floor. Uh, unbelievable. And, and Kusahara becomes the fourth American to, to win, and he's following in, in good footsteps. Sebastian Corda, Donald Young, and Andy Roddick. You know, so some pretty good names there for him to be following. Does someone like Bruno, he's now a Grand Slam junior champion, should he go to US college or should he go and play professional tennis? If I can jump in, I'll, I'll, I'll just be... you me to make the decision for him. <laughs> Fred, Freddie? I would just say really quick, I can say as a, I'm, I'm Davis Cup captain in Denmark and I'm, I'm going to be the national coach in Denmark as well. And I can say that seeing as my players, we have both, we have one of the biggest talents in world tennis. We have Holger Rune, who's 18 years old and is top 100. He should definitely not go to college. And at no point has it been like a viable option for him to go to college because he's too good. But the rest of our Davis Cup team are college players. And they've, I think it's fair to say, gotten to that level they have gotten to because of college. And at the moment we have, uh, I don't know if he's still ranked number one, but we have the number one ranked guy in college. And it's really, really an important, has been an important pathway for our guys. Um, that, that because, for example, from a small tennis country like us, we don't have much infrastructure. So going to college has been essential. And I would like to encourage my players to take the college road because they can offer something that we might not be able to offer just yet in Denmark. So I'm very pro, pro it. But like I said, if you are extraordinary like Holger, and Hossi also said the same, don't go. And also like Hossi say, make sure you pick the right college because it's not just going to college is the end all. You got to pick the right school because you can be, you can pick some pretty, you know, some schools that are not great matches for you. Yeah, and Bruno Kuzahara, you know, he he, uh, he played the Nationals, the 18th Nationals here in the US. And I think... I can't remember if he lost in the quarterfinal or the semifinal, but, you know, that was in uh, August, you know, so just a few months ago, four months ago, and then he goes to Australia and wins a slam. Um, you know, I'm sure that there were some players that didn't go to Australia, so Australia doesn't often have the strongest uh, junior grand slam draw. And I know that, you know, American players, uh, I can think of a girl two years ago who lost the French Open final. She went ahead and went to college. So it's not that beyond the realm of possibility that you win a slam or play final of a slam and go to college. It's possible. But I think what Freddie said, you know, if you're Holger Rune or if you're a player that is demonstrating success on the pro circuit, um, say, you know, in the top 250 in the world, then you want to consider, okay, I'm not going to go. But 
you know, just because you're winning a junior slam or a junior nationals, if you're not cutting it in futures and, and getting your ranking up quickly, then I think college is a pretty viable option. Plus, you hit, the, you hit the nail on the head. Winning a junior grand slam means a crock of shit. I think you've got to look at, at, at the senior ranking. And Freddie, you, you, your, point, your point is more poignant. If, if, you know, in terms of the trajectory of, of ATP ranking, then you make that decision. You know, so so that if if you if you're ahead of the curve and and you're light years ahead of your peers, then yeah, college is not an option. But Vozzy, if you win a junior grand slam, how's your trajectory looking? I'm gonna have loads of agents signing me up and, and I'm gonna go with <laughs> Tiffany and I'm gonna go with Hugo Boss and et cetera, et cetera. Um no, I mean I think I think that there's I mean it's all relative. I mean, yeah, it's a great achievement to win a junior slam, don't get me wrong, but you know, people be looking at you. You've won a junior slam, but you know what is what is your ATP ranking? You know, and or then WTA or WTA, yeah, WTA ATP. You know, so so it's all it's all relevant um, to 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 your senior ranking versus you know what you what you what you've done. Moving into into the girls' singles, uh, a story I really have to mention. And Lucy, I'd love to bring you in here. Maybe I'm going to bring you in to name the names because they're such difficult names to pronounce. But uh, the winner to, to look out for, Petra Marcinko from Croatia, won the, won the girls' singles. But then an amazing story that really kind of caught on because the first ever girl from Iran and the first ever girl from Kenya to win to win Grand Slam Junior events. Uh, the girl from Iran, Meshkala Zara, and Okatoyu from, from Kenya. Uh, so some amazing stories that were coming out of Melbourne uh, across the board and in the juniors as well, Lucy. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you got the pronunciation. I think that was not bad at all. Well done. Yeah, I mean, I think obviously when you're starting to make history and open doors like that, you know, the first girls that have been able to do that, that's amazing for those countries and the impact that that will have on other players starting to get more opportunities is is amazing. So, I mean, those two stories, and I think that's where we've talked a lot, haven't we, about the players coming up today. We, we, we live in a world that we didn't actually grow up in. I think we've got to remember that. It's pretty, everything's instant now. And, you know, you press a button and you can get get something you're on social media so that platform can be really positive but it can also be damaging I mean in those regards it was great because there was a, a lot of publicity and, and the platform was used in the right way but I think it's it's tough for the players these days there's a lot of a lot of pressure on their shoulders I totally agree that the teams now are massive and even the players you know, back in the day, they'd be talking about their coach. Now they're talking about their team and, you know, the the rankings maybe not there. And you've got then a lot of people that have got their own agendas and their own interests in terms of what they want to get out of the player and, and maybe the player's not at the centre of it. So it's it's difficult. It's a totally different world and we have to obviously appreciate that. It will be interesting over the next sort of, five, ten years to see, you know, what players, whether we're going to have a lot of players chopping and changing at the top end or whether we'll see what we've seen over the last however many years with the players that have been right up there at the top. I mean, in the juniors, interesting in the girls, both of them were 16. So I think 
as Stephen said, that certainly in Oz you don't maybe get the strongest field, but I think certainly in the with the girls they don't tend to play in their last few years because they're already having an impact at WTA tour level. But the two players, they I think uh, Belgian girl she won Taragon the lead up event and. Uh, um, Petra, she she won Orange Bowl, didn't she? She was seeded one there. So certainly two players to look out for. Uh, on that point, I'm just having a little laugh here. I remember playing Wimbledon in 2004 and my family were following it on teletext. <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable how it changes. We, 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 we had a girl from the academy, Rasheen, that played the Australian Open girls' main draw and we all watched it on Eurosport. I mean, it's like, like watching it, like the whole, the, the whole academy is up at like two o'clock in, in the morning watching this girl play rather than on like three, two, one on teletext, watching the score change every five minutes. It's mad well, how quickly it's changed. sending a fax or having to put coins in the box. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. Guys, we... We could go on. You guys have been brilliant as 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 always. I've uh, absolutely loved it. I I have, I have a quick fire quick fire round to finish, as is our tradition. And what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you five tennis players. And I I apologise that four male and one is female, but the, you will see why, uh, because we're talking about the 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 goats. Of uh, uh, that's obviously happening right now with Rafael Nadal winning 21. And when I give those five names, you've got to tell me how many Grand Slams they're going to win in their careers. And the the names are the three going for the goats, Rafa, Roger, Novak. Uh, in case you don't know, Roger is on 20. Novak is on 20. And Rafael Nadal is now on 21. Medvedev, I I know we talked a little bit about him. For me, he is, I I said it earlier, he reminds me so much of Djokovic. Like, I think nobody else on the planet was beating him today, you know, apart from Rafael Nadal coming up with that unbelievable effort. He's got that ability, even when he's match point down against Felix, you just have this strong feeling he was going to hit a big first serve, hits the fastest serve of the day and goes on to win the match. Uh, he's the fourth name. And then I think we're all in agreement that Ash Barty is is very much taking the, the, the WTA tour by storm. You know, she's now won on hard courts, clay courts and grass courts. How long and how many she can win, we only know. So those are your five names. You need to give me five numbers. So give me the name and the number. Xavier, you are going to start us off. So Feather is going to stay at 20, unfortunately. Uh, Nadal, 22. Djokovic, I'm going to say 24. Medvedev, mm, nah. eight. Um, and Barty, how many does she have now? Three. Three. 13 for Barty. X, are you still going Osaka 20? <laughs> Osaka 20? Uh, no. <laughs> 20 games. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a tough year, Xavier. <laughs> yeah, hey, we've all been there, you know. <laughs> Vozzy? So I'm going to go um, Medvedev 4, 
Federer stand 20, Nadal stand 21, and I'm going Djokovic 23 and Ash Barty 7. Lucy? I'm going to go Barty 8, Medvedev 6, Djokovic 24, Federer 20, and Rafa 22. You're hanging your hat on the clay. Yeah. yeah, one more. We all are. Hussie? <laughs> uh, Roger, 20. Novak, 24. Uh, Rafa, 22. Medvedev, 5. And Barty, 9. Freddie? I will say Roger stays on 20, unfortunately. Rafa, 22. Novak, 25. Medvedev, five, Barty, eight. So you are all wrong, unfortunately. Right. It's uh, it's Roger, 20. Oh. <laughs> it's, Ra- it's Rafa and Novak, 23 each. Um, you you can it. R- Rafa has to be, he has to be at least on level. Uh, Medvedev is also going to win a lot more than any of you have said. He's going to win 12. Oh my god! What are you on you about? That Spanish wine, or what are you drinking? Over there? Uh, hey, in in twelve years' time, we'll pull up this clip if it's oh, still okay. if we're still using. I might not be here in twelve years' time. Eh? And Ash Barty, Ash Barty is going to win ten. So that's. I mean, we might have to wait and see who's right. But but let's see. But uh, the French Open will be the next one. I think it'll take uh, a, a big person to go against Nadal and Barty, the way things are going. You know, they're our 2022 Australian Open champions. You guys are all amazing champions. Again, giving your time up to come on to the podcast. So a big personal thank you to you all. And on behalf of the listeners, a massive thank you as well, guys. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. And as the Australian Open comes to an end, we've all got to find something to do with ourselves when we wake up early in the morning after the last two weeks of switching the phone on, getting Eurosport on, finding out what's been going on overnight, and then watching whatever matches come on, trying to make an excuse to not have to go to work. We've got to go back to normal life now, and it won't be long before we have the US hard court swing, and before you know it, the clear court season will be back, and there's going to be plenty more tennis in 2022. I just want to say a big big thank you to my panel of guests. I I know I've said it before, but maybe you're listening for the first time. They don't charge a penny for that. They give their time up. They come on with a willingness to share, a willingness to give their experience and insight. And beyond anything else, I think for me, it's just so much fun. You know, I can't tell you how much fun was. I sat there, I'm sitting there with three former Grand Slam winners you know, and and people that have just incredible experience in the game at, at all the levels. And I, I, I love, I value, I cherish that time that I get with with the team, with the panel. And I thought having Stephen Huss coming in was a, was a fantastic addition. So thank you, Hussey. As you might have heard at the start, this was episode 149, which means... It's 150 next. And a little admission, I've already 
done the chat for the episode for 150. I let the cat out the bag in the last episode. I've been promising this guest for a long time. We finally managed to, to catch up. Marty Fish is our guest that will be coming to you next Tuesday. I promise you, this is a one you need to share far and wide. If you haven't yet watched his Untold on Netflix, please do. It'll set up the podcast very nicely. At the end of that podcast, I guarantee you'll be racing to try and watch it. An incredible story. Someone who has opened up and helped so many people with his mental health battles, his high-profile mental health battles, but also someone who got to world number seven and US number one male player at a time as he came up with Andy Roddick, was taking over the mantle from Pete Sampras and Andre Agassi. And and he also plays golf to a pretty high level as well. So he was a quite fantastic guest. Next Tuesday, that one will be coming out. Lots more coming your way or in the coming weeks, the coming months. Thank you all for the support. But until next time, I'm Dan Kiernan, and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>